All right, good evening, everybody. Appreciate you being out with us. You can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you can see, I've given you the outline below me. Before we dig into the outline, uh, just a couple quick announcements. Uh, I mentioned it in church this morning. Just want to remind everybody of the special event we're having on Wednesday. That's at 6 p.m. from 6 to 8 p.m. at Toro in Fondorov Park. And we're going to be discussing the struggles of the single life. Uh, if any of you are interested, as I've been mentioning, it doesn't matter if you're 17 or 70. Uh, anybody who's single is more than welcome to attend. And I, I do have things prepared to teach you. Uh, but there will also be an opportunity for some interaction, for some question and answer. So please uh, make, make time for that if you'd like. And also, I just wanted to say thank you for all of you that prayed uh, while I was away last week. And also, for those of you that know about the procedure that I had, I hope that this bandage on the side of my head doesn't serve as a distraction tonight. I only want to mention it now so that it is not a distraction. Uh, but they, they had to pull and take part of an artery so that they could do a biopsy. And um, as a result of, of this entire procedure, I'm on a lot of different medications and uh, it's straining my voice. So if you hear that I'm not sounding super clear, I please, I apologize. I hope that I'm loud enough coming through the mic. Uh, if I'm not, would you please drop me a comment, let me know so that I can make some adjustments to how I've arranged my desk. Um, but by the grace of God, on we go. And I would appreciate your continued prayers on that. All right, in 2 Corinthians 10, tonight we're beginning a chapter that deals with spiritual warfare. And this will go on for a couple of chapters. And uh, we're certainly going to need God's help as we deal with this very intense subject. So if you would pray with me, and then we'll jump right into the text. Father, please guide us as always. We, we come to you in a time of need. And Lord, we need understanding, we need guidance, we want the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And Lord, when it comes to the spiritual battlefield, this is outside of the realm of our expertise of what we're uh, accustomed to. We, we need your help in a special way tonight. Please guide me, fill me with your Spirit, and help each one of us as we listen and learn tonight from the Scripture, might it make a difference in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the outline for this chapter, I've broken it into three parts. Number one, dealing with disobedience. This is verses one to six, and I believe that's as far as we're going to get tonight. And then the second part, verses seven to 11, proving one's power. And I'm speaking specifically about authority there. Paul mentions his authority, what it's for, and how he can manifest it. And then the end of the chapter, verses 12 to 18, commending comparing and competing. And uh, obviously we'll flesh that out more when we get to that part of the chapter. Uh, but unfortunately, this is part, part of the Christian life that has to be dealt with, uh, that there is competition that shouldn't be there. And Paul deals with that in a brilliant way towards the end of the chapter. All right, <clears throat> verse number one, Paul says this, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So that's the attitude with which he is approaching them. Who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. A couple of things I'd like to point out uh, in verse 1. Notice how Paul emphasizes himself. He says, now I, Paul, myself. 
why add the word myself? If you take that word out and it just says, now I, or now I, Paul, beseech you, you still get the full understanding of, of, in the context, right? It's Paul speaking. But Paul emphasizes himself here. Why would he do that? As you can see, the, the heading just above the verse, of course, I didn't put that in there, but this particular Bible um, app did. Paul defends his ministry, starting in chapter 10 and running through chapter 11, even a little bit into chapter 12, he's going to be doing this. And what Paul's doing is saying, I'm standing up for myself. Now, I, Paul, myself, it is perfectly well and fine if you have other people that will stand up and vouch for you. Paul had that, right? Jesus had that. When people called Jesus into question and said, uh, you're making all these claims about being the Messiah, now bring forth some witnesses. Jesus appealed to John the Baptist. He said, you guys, uh, you like John. He said, you rejoiced with what he was doing. Now, why don't you listen to what John said? So it's not wrong to have other people vouch for you, but it's also not wrong to stand up for yourself. Paul was under attack by a certain crowd uh, within this Corinthian church and even some people from without the church that were trying to interfere with church business. And we'll dig into that more, especially in chapter 11. Paul says, guys, I, I want to deal with this head on and I'm going to deal with it myself. Uh, Paul had the authority to do it. He had the wits to do it. He had the know-how. And uh, Paul was not afraid to stand up to these accusers and to answer the accusations that were being made about him. And unfortunately, this is not only a part of a, a preacher's life, but this is part of life in general. And there's a great lesson to be learned here. When people are saying things about you, speaking evil of you, right? True or not, sometimes you have to deal with it. You cannot hide from it and you have to stand up for yourself. And Paul's going to give us some outstanding advice about how to deal with this. You know, the charges that were being laid against Paul, much like the charges that were being laid against Christ, were unfounded. They were wrong. So that's why this part of the chapter, I've, I've labeled it dealing with disobedience. So Paul is in the right, but he's not going to overreact and handle these accusations in a, in a wrong or a poor way. So I, Paul, myself, beseech you, I'm begging you. He says, the appeal that I am now going to make, I'm making it by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But he says, guys, just like Christ could handle a situation gently, I, I want to handle this situation gently. I don't want to come in swinging the rod of my authority and squashing this mutiny within the church, these, these accusers. I want to attempt to deal meekly and gently. Now, Jesus could do this, right? I mentioned this morning in the sermon, he was the perfect balance of meekness and boldness, uh, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. I want you to notice the order in which Paul is approaching this. Whenever you have somebody that's accusing you of something, somebody has done you wrong and you need to deal with it, your go-to move, your first move should not be wrath. Your first move should not be to react out of anger, but rather to react meekly, gently. Remember what the definition of meekness is. 
when somebody is provoking you, you handle it gently. That's what meekness is. You, you, you take it easy. So when Jesus came the first time, he came to receive sinners. He came as the lamb to be slain. He came as the suffering servant. When he comes the second time, Jesus comes with a rod. And the Bible says in Revelation 19, verse 15, he'll, he'll rule with a rod of iron. You read this prophesied in the book of Isaiah. During that millennial kingdom, uh, he will rule with a rod of iron. It will be very strict in that time. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a lamb. When he comes the second time, he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is not afraid to stand up for himself, but, and he does know how to lay down the law and say enough is enough. But Jesus first tries meekness and gentleness. He approaches the sinner with love and says, I want you to repent. I want this to be made right. Now, if things cannot be made right, then you might have to get bold. Then the rod has to come out. Moms and dads, I hope you're listening to that. This is exactly how you should deal with disobedience in your home. When your children make a mistake, your first move should not be to grab the rod. Sometimes the rod is necessary. I'm going to show you some verses a little later about that. However, your first move is to speak with the child and to do it calmly, to do it... I, I, to do it in, in, in gentleness, meekness, just as Paul is approaching the Corinthians. Now notice at the end of, of verse 1, Paul talks about his physical presence, who in presence and base among you. So while Paul was physically among them, he wasn't much to look at. And we know this from historical documents. You only get some implications of this in the Bible, that Paul was a very slender man. We know this in the book of Acts because they let him down in a basket over a wall. He couldn't have been that big of a man. At least that's what that implies. But history tells us that he was short, skinny, bald. When you read 2 Corinthians 11, you find that he had been beaten several times. He must have been a physical mess to look at and, and not a very... Um, opposing type figure, not a very daunting, intimidating figure. And when he was with them, he did not speak to them in this bold, uh, brash, rough type of manner. He did not come down real hard. When he was among them, he was very gentle and meek. But he says, being absent, I'm bold towards you. Now, what is he getting at there? When he writes them letters. Remember, we're, we're studying 2 Corinthians. We have first. Corinthians, what we know is the first epistle to the Corinthians. He had actually written a letter before that one as well. We just, we, God didn't see fit to preserve that one. But Paul, when he wrote to them, wow, when you read 1 Corinthians, you can see just how bold Paul could be. And he would hit the nail on the head. There was no doubt about where he stood on things. Let me show you a couple of examples how Paul could be bold when not among them. Look at what he, he's dealing in 1 Corinthians 15 with a false teaching about the resurrection. Some of the Corinthians had stopped believing in a resurrection altogether. Look at what he says here. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And then he goes on to explain the resurrection. Now that's pretty pointed, right? Thou fool, that's pretty rough. Uh, just a few verses before it, in verse 34, awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Shame on you. 
Shame on you, that's, that's pretty straightforward. So Paul, when absent, he could be quite bold. Um, let me also point out, I, this is outside of Corinthians, but you can just see the kind of way Paul would talk. Oh, foolish Galatians, I'm in Galatians 3 verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? That's pretty straightforward talk. Now see, Paul could do that. He knew, he knew how to be bold. Um, bringing you back to 2 Corinthians 10, he says in verse number 2, But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence. So guys, I know how to be bold. I know how to, to speak directly. I know how to drop the rod. He says, but I'd much rather when I come, come with the spirit of meekness and gentleness. I want to approach things the way Christ approached them when he was on the earth dealing with, with sinners. The, what Christ first tried to do when he came. Christ didn't start preaching with furious rebukes against hardened sinners. When you read about the early days of Christ's ministry, he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He did tell people to repent, no doubt. But as his ministry progressed, you could see the boldness in Jesus' building. And uh, I'll show you a few verses now about how that operated. Paul is, is reminding the people, guys, I, I have options. I have confidence in God's calling in my life. God has called me. God has equipped me. I know that I am allowed to say the things that I'm saying. It is well within my rights to set you straight, but I'd much rather be able to deal gently. That's the right attitude. That's the right way to approach difficulties with people, whether it's in a church, in your home, in your workplace, wherever it's at. He says, I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence. Now, let me show you the kind of boldness that uh, Paul could use. In Acts chapter 13, we see a man here, verse number 10. Paul says to this man, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Paul was preaching, witnessing to some guy, and then another man stepped in and tried to interfere. Paul shut it down, and he does it with sharpness and boldness. He says in verse 11, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. You see, Paul had confidence in what he had been allowed by God to do, and he knew if I need to make a point, I can make the point. Uh, Jesus, let me show you a couple of his attributes. First, we're going to look at the meek and gentle side of it. Now, now look at this comment. This is one side of Jesus. Come unto me, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see the, the invitation he's giving here? He, he just comes right out and says, I'm meek and lowly in heart, and I'd like to teach you how to, how to be this way as well. But only a few verses before this. Look at what he says. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. When Jesus was dealing with a humble 
sinner, a, a, a penitent sinner. He was very meek and mild, very gentle. When Jesus got to the proud, when Jesus got to the man who was full of himself, the one who thought of himself as wise and prudent, even though he was rejecting what Christ was revealing, then Christ could be very sharp and be very bold. But his first move, right, the first thing he wanted was for the people to repent. He wanted to receive these sinners, not beat them down with a rod. You can see this clearly here in uh, Luke 9, verse 51. Now, this is even towards the end of Jesus's ministry, but you can still see that, that he, he had the capacity for meekness. In Luke 9, 51, it says, it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. This is going on towards the cross. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Verse 53 says, and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Now, they're referring back to 2 Kings chapter 1. You might remember there where the king sends men to Elijah. And they say, O thou man of God, come down, speak to the king. And he says, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. Now, see, there is a time and a place for that. There is a time and a place for that. But listen, you don't have to drop the fire on the, on the crowd every time you preach. You don't have to bang them with a rod and beat them with a rod every time you preach. There is a time and a place for that. And these disciples weren't aware. They didn't have that proper balance yet of when to be meek and gentle, when to be bold. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit ye are of. He said, guys, be careful of your attitude here. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Given that circumstance, these Samaritans, they didn't have the, all of the revelation that the people, the Jews in Jerusalem had had. They didn't get to see all the miracles that Capernaum and the regions around Galilee, they didn't get to see all this. So Jesus is, is a little more merciful with them. And as you deal with accusations and people abusing you, treating you wrong, you need to keep in mind, um, you, you need to judge, it, judge the whole situation, not just one statement taken out of context. Get to know why this person, why this group is saying what they're saying. So Jesus, he, you can see the meek and mild approach to him, but at other times, I'll show you now, Jesus was fully capable of using the rod as well. He tells Peter in this case, I'm going to go to the cross. Peter says in verse 22, He rebuked him, be it far from thee, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. That's pretty straightforward. Now see, by this point, Peter should have known better than to stand up and rebuke the Lord. When the Lord says, I'm going to go to the cross, then it's time to go to the cross. So Jesus, he, he can be very straightforward. Now this is with Peter. Wow, when it comes to the other crowd, uh, the crowd that was rejecting Jesus, Peter was on his side. Here in Matthew 15, we have a case where people are accusing Jesus of 
breaking the traditions of the elders. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, 6, Honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. He said, guys, you have taken the entire, what, what they would call the Bible, and just thrown it away by your tradition. That's, that's pretty straightforward. Verse 7, ye hypocrites, right to their face, ye hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people draweth nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's harsh. He says, you guys are worshiping me uselessly. Whew. That's tough. In verse number 15, or verse number 12 rather, then came his disciples and said, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Well, I bet they were. In verse 14, I, forgive me, I'm just moving quickly, but verse 14, Let them alone, Jesus said. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. That's bold. That's pretty direct. I think this is a passage you'll be familiar with. But Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 13, and really the whole chapter, but starting in verse 13, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 14, same thing. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16, ye blind guides. Verse 17, ye fools and blind. Verse 19, ye fools and blind. This is rough. This is rough. Verse 23, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 24, ye blind guides. Verse 25, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, same thing, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at where he ends this now. Verse number 33, or at least where I'm going to pull up here. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? That's straightforward. Jesus knew how to be bold. Uh, let me give you another example. John 8, this is a scathing chapter, John 8. He says to this group of Jews, group of Jews, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's harsh to look somebody in the face and say, you're of your father the devil. Uh, that passage continues down to verse 55. There's obviously back and forth between Jesus and these Jews. He says, yet ye have not known him. He's saying to the Jews, you don't know God, but I know him. Do you see the boldness? I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his saying. Guys, that is boldness. That is boldness. Now, Paul, let me bring you back to chapter 10 here. Paul says in verse number 2, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 2, he has appealed to the meek and gentle nature of Christ. But he's reminded them, guys, I know how to be bold as well. Verse 2, I'm begging you, don't make me combine my presence and my boldness. I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence. Uh, in chapter 11, Paul is going to lay into a long defense of, his, of himself and his ministry. We're going to deal, obviously, more with that when we get to those verses. I want to show you just one other place where Paul stood up for himself here. Galatians 2, verse 11. This is the case where 
Peter was eating with certain Gentiles there in Galatia. And he says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, do you think Paul, every time he went to church, every time he stood up to preach, do you really think he got in somebody's face and called him out by name and, and dressed him down like this? Obviously not. That's not what Paul wanted to do, but sometimes, sometimes the situation demands it. But l let me be very clear. This is what we want to avoid. Do you see the attitude of Paul? I'm begging you, don't make me, d don't, don't push me to this point. I'm, <laughs> I wanted to say like, you've probably heard mom and dad or dad especially say, don't make me pull this car over. <laughs> we don't want to get to that point. Right? We, we want to deal with this as calmly as possible, but there does come a time that you have to stand up. Uh, let me show you here what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, in verse number 19. Uh, let's get verse 18. 1 Corinthians 4, 18. Now some are puffed up. He's speaking to the Corinthians. Some of you guys are puffed up as though I would not come to you. He said, you guys are saying all these things behind my back. You're whispering these things, gossiping about me and my fellow laborers, and you don't think I'm going to pitch up. You don't think that I'll stand up for myself. Verse 19, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. He said, you want to make accusations? You want to talk? Help yourself. But when I get there, we're going to find out actually what proof you have. What authority do you have to say that what I'm doing is wrong? How can you prove that what I've been teaching and how I've been teaching it is wrong? I don't want to know just what you gossip and talk about behind closed doors. I want to see the proof. Give me the evidence. Show me chapter and verse. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It's not who can make the most eloquent speech. It's the one who can say, thus saith the Lord. In verse 21, what will ye? Now he's giving them an option. Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Do you see the option? He says, guys, I can come to you and be bold and direct and harsh, or I can come and be gentle, loving, meek. Now, let's be clear. Just because somebody uses the rod doesn't mean that they lack love. It just means that the crowd that they're dealing with is a bit too hard and dealing gently and softly with them won't get the job done, right? So Jeremiah chapter 23 is not my word like unto a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. So if you don't want God to drop the hammer, then don't have a hard heart, right? If you want people to deal gently with you, have a soft heart. But sometimes, sometimes that rod is a necessity. It's what we want to avoid, but sometimes you can't avoid it. Let me show you. Proverbs 13, verse 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son. See, so some people get very confused on this. And when a preacher speaks directly, boldly, and says things like, ye generation of vipers, says things like, you're of your father the devil. When he says things like, leave him alone, the blind lead the blind. You look at that and go, man, he's such a hateful man. That's not hate. That's somebody who is exhausted meekness, gentleness, and has now been forced to take up the rod, to take the hammer and break the rock in pieces. 
the fact that you are willing to go as far as to use the rod proves how much you love that person. That even, even if you're going to have to cause a little bit, a little bit, not abusive, mind you, but some physical pain to teach that child a lesson. As a preacher, sometimes you got to say some things that you know are going to be cutting and a little bit hard to accept, hard to hear, but it's necessary. And you say it because you love the people. Some people, some especially immature Christians, some that are not accustomed to biblical preaching, they are going to hear that and immediately say, he said that in a mean tone, therefore he is a mean man. And that's, that's just a very shallow understanding of what's going on. It says, he that loveth him, in, I'm back in Proverbs 13, 24, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. The times is an old word to, to means diligently. You're on top of it. You don't just let it go and let it go and let it go. You don't let them get away with it forever. Sometimes, eventually, right? Before it gets, before it's gone too far, you pull out the rod. Now, let's uh, work our way a little further in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse number 2. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some. He says, I know what some of you guys are saying. And he says, I really don't want to do that. Please don't make me do that. But the crowd that he's thinking of here, at the end of the verse, he says, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So that's the accusation, one of them, that they're making about Paul. That he is walking and performing his ministry and living according to the flesh. Now there's, I think, several things that could be understood from that. Number one, they might have meant, and it might be all of this, they might have meant that Paul was not telling the truth about Jesus, and about the body of Christ, about the mysteries, but that rather Paul was making this up based on his own human wisdom, his own natural human ability to try to figure things out, and that Paul was twisting and perverting Scripture in order to come to these conclusions. So possibly that's what they mean by Paul's walking according to the flesh. Possibly they're making an accusation that Paul is not actually doing miracles, but rather manipulating people and faking it. Or maybe even like they accuse Christ of being full of the devil, something of that nature. It could be this, and I think this is a very real possibility. After Paul had sharply rebuked the Corinthians, and when you read 1 Corinthians, you know that he did. They could have said, hey, Paul is being too rough on us. Paul, there's no meekness. There's no love in this guy. He's just slamming us with the rod. And again, you go back and read uh, 1 Corinthians and you'll see it. I'm going to give you just a quick example of it. Chapter 3, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? You see, Paul, man, he called a spade a spade, if you're familiar with that turn of phrase. He says, you, you guys are immature. You guys can't handle the straight truth, the revelation of God. 
Now, you tell that to most people, and you know what they're going to say. They're going to say, hey, why you got to be so rough? Why do you got to be so direct? Why, Paul, are you picking on us? Now, Paul is not picking on them. That's not, his, that's not his goal here. We know this. Paul loves the Corinthians deeply. He cares for them. And uh, there's a certain portion of this church that is all on Paul's side. And Paul's aware of that. But he knows that some of these people, they need some very direct uh, rebuke. So maybe that part of the church that needed this sharp rebuke, they're saying, hey, Paul, the Spirit of God did not lead you to rebuke us in that manner. Paul, you are reacting um, just based on your own the losing of your own temper. You're just upset and angry that we don't like you. And it, you, you can even hear in that this immature nature that Paul is referred to here. I, I will say, let me bring you back to 2 Corinthians 10, but you can always tell, you can always tell when a Christian hasn't been reading his or her Bible when you give them a, a very direct, bold sermon and they don't recognize it as biblical preaching, they recognize it as hatred and arrogance. You say, who do you think you are to talk like that? When somebody has been reading the Bible, you can see clearly how bold and direct and straightforward the prophets of God were consistently, the, the way that they dealt with the people consistently, they were, they were preaching that way. They didn't, need, they didn't want to be, right? But sometimes they needed to be. And it worries me how sensitive the body of Christ has become that we cannot speak clearly with people. And as soon as we, it's not a matter of, I'm not talking about making fun of people, right? That, that's always wrong, to make fun of people. But when you stand up and say, what this person said was wrong, what you're doing is wrong, you need to stop your sinful ways. When that type of preaching is referred to as arrogant, when it is referred to as coming from the flesh, that the person making that accusation is actually showing off their immaturity. Because biblically speaking, you would see that such preaching is incredibly in line. With, with Jesus, with the apostles, with the prophets, with, with all of God's revelation. These are the things that he would have us say. The very first preacher we have recorded in the Bible is Enoch. And I would, I would beg you to go read the book of Jude where we have a small clip of Enoch's preaching. And it's all about how the ungodly do this and the ungodly do that and all their ungodly ways. Hard preaching, straightforward preaching. That, that does not make a person a mean person, a bad person, or a, makes him according to the flesh. You can be led by the Spirit and speak very straight. Now, verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. So he recognizes that we're in this physical body. We walk in the flesh. We are still in this tabernacle, this physical housing that we call the body. But even though we're stuck within this human body, we do not war after our human nature. So we are not being pulled by the puppet strings of our flesh. We, we, this is a spiritual battle. We want to be led by the Spirit of God. And Paul is going to refer to the spiritual weaponry that he employs. 
So yes, we are in this body and yes, we're in this world and we have to function accordingly, right? Uh, Jesus acknowledged this in John 17. He said, you're in the world, but you should not be of the world. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about how a married couple, how a man needs to care for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. So while we're in this world and in this human body, yes, we're going to have to take care of some physical things. But as it comes to approaching the ministry and our relationships with people and even how we go about those menial duties of the flesh, taking care of everyday life, we still want to do it in line with what God desires. So verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. All right, a few things I'd like to say about that. Uh, I'm going to link this with the end of verse 3. We do not war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical. Now, this, I, I, it's such a shame. This is a blot on the history of Christianity that for hundreds of years, and I mean that, hundreds of years, what people referred to as the church used physical weapons in order to spread Christianity. And I speak specifically of the Catholic Church. In the early days of the Catholic Church, we're talking the late 300s, 400s, 500s as Christianity. And now I'm talking the, the, the westernized Roman Catholicism that was spreading through Europe. They would go to a country and claim to have 10,000 converts in one day. 10,000 converts to Christianity, which on the surface sounds good until you know how they did it. They would go to the people with sword and spear and say, guys, you have two options. They would walk them out to the, to the sea. So you got two options. Either you get baptized and become Christian or we drown you. Either way, you're getting wet today. Well, you can see the people would say, okay, we give in. That is completely against the teachings of Christ and the teaching of Paul here. That is not how we are to spread Christianity. Now, by the way, that same physical coercion continued even in the days of the Reformation. This is not limited to Roman Catholicism. You've heard me say this many times that the, the Reformers had a bit of Catholica Babalos. They had a little Catholic hangover. Yorick Zwingli, Calvin did it a little bit. Many of the Puritans, when they went to America, um, it was common practice in some of these Reformed places that they would also use physical coercion to, to, let's say, influence people to believe a certain way. And, guys, that is just completely, totally against what Paul's teaching here. I, I'm, I'm going to refer you to something that you may not expect in a Bible study, but in the Quran, chapter 2, verse 256, Muhammad said, Let there be no compulsion in religion. Truth stands out clear from error. Now, Muhammad was right when he said that. There should be no compulsion in religion. But, if I might speak so boldly, could he have been more hypocritical? Because if there's ever been a religion that has used compulsion in order to gain converts, and again, Christianity has a blot on it, and that prevents a lot of preachers from speaking out against Islam and the physical nature of that religion, 
but they are very known for converting people at the tip of, of a sword, the edge of a sword. When it comes to compulsion in religion, let there be no compulsion in religion. Even this, I am not going to threaten people to say, listen, if you don't convert, I am going to treat you wrong. I'm going to ignore you and treat, and treat you as if you don't exist. Do you know how many family members coerce and, and, and they use this pressure to say, if you switch, if you convert, then you're dead to me. That's another form of compulsion. You find that in Christian and Islam and all over the world. Guys, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't need to use those physical tricks and manipulation to win people to God. Paul says in verse 4, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The weaponry that we have access to as Christian soldiers is, is mighty, but it is only mighty through God. Even when we put on the whole armor of God and take up the right weapons, we still need the Spirit of God leading us to use each piece of weaponry as He desires in order to accomplish the goal. So when Paul says that our weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God. So we don't use guns, bombs, knives, swords. Listen, we don't use human or worldly wisdom. That's carnal. We don't need to use psychology. We don't need philosophy. We don't need the modern version of science, the bad version of science, where, they're, where they get into the forensic explanation of what happened billions of years ago. That's, that's just fairy tales for grown-ups. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need to appeal to the sensual nature of the world in order to win them. As one preacher pointed out very correctly, the way that you get people in is how you're going to keep them in. So this is something that actually comes up quite a bit. Is it okay to have uh, fun and games in the church, to have entertainment, to have special events? Now listen, it's perfectly fine to have an event in order to produce to to produce an opportunity to fellowship. If you can find an open door to gather people so that you can preach to them, so that you can minister this to them, to give them something edifying, use whatever tactic is right and necessary to provide yourself the open door to preach. But our weaponry is not the gimmick itself. And that's, I think, what the church has made a massive mistake on. The reason people want to come to church so often now is because it's so entertaining. It doesn't matter what the preacher says. It doesn't matter if he has any proof for what he's saying. As long as he says it nicely and gently and softly and as long as he doesn't uh, raise the standard and expect too much of me. As long as he makes me feel better about myself. And now when you bring people in, and if you, if you don't have a, 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 a long, protracted quote-unquote, worship service where it's pretty much just entertainment, right? People aren't interested. You see how people have turned to worldly gimmicks, carnal gimmicks. Now, guys, if, if you want to offer coffee and hot dogs or steaks or braai or whatever you guys want to do, whatever activity you want to have, help yourself. An activity in and of itself is innocent. Until, until you say, I'm going to use the activity by itself and show this person that Christianity can be fun. And because Christianity is fun, this person will become a Christian. 
That's not how we win people to Christ. That's not how we prove our point. Now, if I want to put on a braai, if I want to buy you a cup of coffee so that I can open my Bible and lovingly show you the truth, right? Do you see how I'm using the same, the same, um, let, let me find the right word. I can still use the same avenue, right? That same open door, but I'm not expecting the coffee or the braai or the entertaining event, I'm not expecting that by itself to convince you of Christianity. I want the preaching of the gospel. I want the solid, righteous, honest testimony of my own life and of other Christians around me to be the convincing proof that people need and people can look at and say, this must be right. Look at what it does for their lives. I want to be able to open up the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, and say, thus saith the Lord, as it is written. So Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Let me, I'm going to switch this. I'm going to use a little bit of Greek on you just for a moment. I only want to show you this so that you understand the word behind it. Weapons, this word, hoplon, it can, it, it, it can mean a, an implement, a utensil, or a tool. And it's translated in the Bible as armor, instrument, or weapon. And it's translated like that six times. You can see there it appears six times in the New Testament. Now, now just look at this word. You can see at the very top of the screen, I hope you can, it says G3696, which is just a numbering system for the Strong's Concordance. Now, weapons, right? Weapons, hoplon. Now I'm going to take you to another place where Paul uses a similar word. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Our weapons are mighty through God, right? Put on the whole armor of God. Now, do you see these two words, whole armor? That comes from one Greek word. That word, panoplia. Now, now look what it says here. It's a compound of two Greek words. One of those Greek words is 3696. Full armor, panoply. So the reason I'm showing you this, when Paul talks about the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6, and then in 2 Corinthians 10, he talks about the weapons of our warfare. He's referring to the same thing. But in Ephesians 6, he refers to it as a whole, the whole armor. So Ephesians 6 is going to be a great place to get some more learning about the armor of God and the weapons, the instruments, the tools that we have. We need to put all of it on. And I'm sure that you are familiar with it. In Ephesians 6, verse 13, uh, 14 rather, you have your loins girt about with truth, so be honest, breastplate of righteousness, live right, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, be ready to preach the gospel everywhere you go, the shield of faith, so believe God's promises, trust Him to provide your need in whatever the case is. Verse 17, the helmet of salvation, so in another place, Paul calls this our hope. Know where you're going. And verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Know your Bible. Verse 18, let's not forget this part. Praying always. Praying always. That's part of your spiritual weaponry. Now these are the weapons that Paul's referring to. 
in 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What are the strongholds? Verse 5, casting down imaginations. Strongholds, is, it's another way of saying a fortified position. A fortified position. We're going to let the Bible interpret itself. Strongholds, verse 4, verse 5, casting down imaginations. So we pull down these fortified positions. We cast down the imaginations. What are the imaginations? The wrong thinking. You get the wrong picture in your mind, right? Imagination, it's an image. An image in your mind. You get this image of God in your mind. You think God is one way. You believe that the service of God should go like this. You believe that the Christian life should be like this. And you get that image in your mind. And the devil can put a false image in there, put false teaching in there, distort the image of Christ, distort the proper uh, appearance of what a believer should live like and feel like and act like. And it's our responsibility to take the sword of the Spirit and prayer and a good testimony and cast down those wrong ideas. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. So God has revealed to us what he's like. He says, here's what I want you to know about me. He did this best in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to know about me. And then false teachers and preachers come in and say, no, 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 that's not what that means. Here's here, and they begin to privately interpret and twist things and say, here's what you should know about God. Or they would say things like this, yes, Jesus is fine, but you also need to worship angels. You also need to be aware of these other spiritual trinkets. And they, they start to elevate things and make, make things that shouldn't be high start to make them high. And they start to prioritize things and blow things out of proportion, say, this is a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's distracting you from the knowledge of God, from getting to know Him better. There were people within the Corinthian church that were believing these false ideas about God. The devil had introduced false teaching and then wrapped that false teaching, fortified it, right? Built walls around it to protect it. They, sometimes the devil will build the wall of reputation. Sometimes the devil will put verses of Scripture taken out of context around a certain teaching so that people cannot get in and tear down that false teaching. Let me show you a place in uh, Proverbs chapter 21. I think this verse speaks well to this. Proverbs 21 verse 22, A wise man scaleth the city of the mighty, and casteth down the strength of the confidence thereof. So sometimes in order to minister to somebody, you have to first help them unlearn what they've learned. And that's the hardest part to learning in many cases, is to unlearn false teaching. But when the devil has fortified, right? He puts a false teaching there, a false image of God, and then fortifies it, builds a wall around it. Oh, it can be very difficult to scale the city, to get over that wall and tear down what has been propping up that belief system. Notice how Paul puts it here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. 
and the servant of the Lord must not strive. We're not there to argue, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness. This works perfectly with what we saw earlier, doesn't it? Verse 25, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. You have barricaded yourself within this false concept of God. Now, please allow us to simply show you what the God of the Bible, what the Jesus of the Bible is actually like. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, watch verse 26, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Notice that last phrase, taken captive by him at his will. Now that's going to help us in 2 Corinthians 10. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What's the goal? The devil tricked you and made you think that Jesus is this way and that the service of God is this way. And the devil took you captive, fortified you. And now Paul says, I have come to you. I'm trying to do it gently, but I'll do it boldly if I have to. And I want to use the tools, the weaponry that God has given me. Paul says, I don't need to manipulate you. I don't need to intimidate you with my physical presence. I couldn't. I just want to show you from the Bible, from my own personal life, my experience in walking with God that this works, this is right, this is who Jesus actually is, so that you no longer obey the devil, taken captive by his will. I want every thought to be brought captive to the obedience of Christ, so that in everything you think about, every aspect of life, you're doing it the way Christ would have you do it the mind of Christ dwelling in you. Guys, there is a battle for our minds. Paul says it clearly right here, doesn't he? Romans 7, verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Verse 23, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So Paul is referring to that battle against his flesh. The world, the flesh, the devil, they all work together to do one thing, to distract you from knowing God. And Paul says, I'm going to pull every spiritual weapon out of my arsenal to try to show you the true Christ, the true God, so that you can live a life that's worthy of him. Let me show you just quickly what the... Corinthians were, were getting messed up with. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul came in and told him plainly about the Lord Jesus. But other people were coming and complicating it, making the spiritual life making the relationship with Christ much more difficult than it needed to be. Paul says in verse 4, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. This is what Paul was afraid of. Verse 3, I fear. He says, I'm afraid if somebody shows up and preaches another Jesus with another gospel and offers another spirit, you guys might actually take it. 
So you can see why Paul, he says enough's enough. Now, guys, I want to deal gently, but my goodness, this is dangerous. And I'm not going to let the serpent just come in and have his way with you guys. So he says in verse 5, back in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In verse 6, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, I believe Paul is addressing the church as a whole. He says, when you as a church come right, when your obedience is fulfilled, you've repented and you have, you have apologized for the things that you've said against me, against Paul in this case, the things that you've done wrong to your fellow brothers and sisters, the things that you've done wrong in the eyes of society, how you've offended them by ruining your testimony. He says, when you guys have come right and repented and you're back in line with, with the, the Bible way, with God's way of doing things, he says, guys, then we're going to make sure that the people who need to be punished will be punished. You see in verse 6, having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience. That word revenge can also be translated as, as punish. He says, guys, I'm, I can't just let these people that have been gossiping and whispering, trying to undermine the authority in the church and, and the authority of Scripture, I can't let that go unnoticed. Now listen, if, if somebody repents and apologizes and comes right, then the situation's over. You receive them back. But he says there are some things that we, we, we can't just ignore it and pretend it didn't happen. We have to. We have to deal with these issues. If I can just speak about the general context here because I don't want to lose sight. I want to zoom out a little bit. We're dealing, this first section, dealing with disobedience. Paul has people that are attacking him in this church. And he's not afraid to stand up for himself. And, he, and he's telling them, guys, some of you are accusing me of walking according to fleshly wisdom. You think that I'm just making it up. You think I got my own way of doing it. You think I'm being too harsh. He says, guys, when I show up, I just want you to know I'm going to set the record straight. And those that have been saying it saying these things, causing this trouble. If I need to, I'll point them out. It's a shame that within a church, right, we have to take friendly fire. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, and that's what this chapter is dealing with, when it comes to warfare, spiritual warfare, the worst kind of fire is friendly fire. You understand what I mean by friendly fire? That's when you accidentally shoot one of your own fellow soldiers. You accidentally hurt them. But unfortunately, within a lot of churches, it's not accidental. If the Corinthians have a problem with Paul, all they need to do is go to Paul. That's all they need to do. If they don't like the way Paul said something, they can approach Paul. Say, Paul, I know deep down I can see it through the sacrifices you've made. By I can, I can see the way you live. I can see by how you treat others 
that you have our best interest in mind. Paul, maybe it's me. Maybe I didn't understand what you said, or I don't understand why you said it that way. But Paul, rather than going behind your back and running you down to a bunch of other people and turning them against you, I'd like to make sure that you and I are on good terms. Paul, can I speak to you about this? I don't think Paul would have had any issues with somebody giving him constructive criticism, saying, Paul, I I, I see it a little different. Can we at least talk about it? But when people are going to go behind his back, when people are going to say false things about him and about Christ, that's when the meekness and gentleness takes a backseat and the rod has to come out. And Paul is promising them church discipline. Now guys, within a battle, when, when, when we're on the firing line, the last thing we need is friendly fire. We don't need to be shooting each other. If you have a problem with one of your fellow soldiers, if you have a problem with, with the gunny sergeant, you know, commander, I don't know what you call him here. I'm familiar with the term gunny sergeant. That's my favorite, favorite term there. It's, that's, that's a term in the Marines that I'm familiar with. But if you have a problem with the guy over you, you have a problem with your fellow soldier, deal with it. That brother, that sister is there to help you. We, we should have the same goal, and our goal is not to tear each other down, to build each other up. But you can see Paul as a, a well-trained, authoritative commander in the Lord's army. He's not afraid to put people in their place. Church discipline is, is a very difficult thing to go through. You never want to have to do that. You don't want to pull out that rod. But I, I honestly believe that if that rod were to be pulled out a little more often, the church would be in much better shape. How do we deal with disobedience? Well, the rod, only if we have to. I'm not going to forget that it's there, but our first, our go-to move, meekness, gentleness, please, Let's sit down and discuss the differences. Let's get it out in the open. Let's talk about it and fix it so we can fight side by side, fighting the good fight of faith. But let's end the friendly fire. No need for that. No need for that. Amen. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. I hope this has helped. Lord willing, next time we'll continue on. We'll talk a bit more about how Paul uh, didn't abuse, but rather used his authority to get something done for God. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. If any of you do have a question, you'd like to slip it in, please feel free to do so now. And if not, then Lord willing, I'll see several of you on Wednesday night. Father, thank you for this privilege tonight to have the Word of God open. And Lord, a very necessary lesson, very difficult things to talk about. Uh, Lord, we, we, don't, we don't want to pull out that rod. I don't enjoy it, Lord. There was a time in my life that I did, and I was wrong. And Lord, I thank you that you have, you've taught me, you've, you've, you've helped me grow. And Lord, I don't want to take out that rod. But I do want to speak truth. And I do want to help people. And I want to do it meekly and gently. But Lord, in all ways, I want to be like Christ. In all things, I want to be like Christ. And when that requires boldness, Lord, give me the boldness to do it. Help all of us as we go through this week to learn how to deal with people better based on what we've studied tonight. Help us, Lord, to pull down these 
misconceptions, these false conceptions of who God is and get to know the God of the Bible and bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Lord, we want to put a smile on your face. We, we beg you, help us to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, thank you so much for your time. Lord willing, we'll see you Wednesday night.